Hello and welcome to Asia Perspectives by the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm your host, Jason Winsunis, Senior Editor at the Economist Intelligence Unit. This is part two of our outlook for the U.S. elections and implications for Asia. In the last episode, we discussed two possible scenarios and how they might impact businesses in the region differently. In this episode, we continue our discussion with Zhang Lipei, director of the Beijing office at the U.S.-China Business Council, as well as my colleague at the EIU, Nick Morrow, who's the lead analyst for global trade, China and Macau, and a supporting analyst for Taiwan. In this second part, we'll take a closer look at the wider implications on trade, geopolitical risks, and commercial opportunities for Asia. So Nick, you mentioned North Korea earlier. That's always a wild card. What are some of the big political and security challenges that the country could raise for the region? Well, I mean, North Korea is one of the most obvious ones. I mean, it sounds a bit funny to think that just a couple of years ago, tensions on the Korean Peninsula were so elevated that, I mean, there were some pundits talking about how we were on a kind of a collision course for war. I mean, things have dialed back since then, but the situation on the Korean Peninsula is still very unstable. The domestic political environment there is incredibly opaque. And so I think that's going to be a constant source of unease at the very least, again, regardless of who wins the election. And that's going to guide some of U.S. strategic policymaking over the next, at least next five years, if not maybe the next decade, based on how all that kind of develops. But beyond Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia and East Asia are also home to a number of hotspots as well. The South China Sea, for example, is an area where we're now starting to see a bit more renewed interest, particularly on the U.S. side, in terms of how the U.S. is countering China's presence there. So, for example, we saw a number of sanctions released in August against a Chinese firm that has done, it's tied some of the island building that's done in the South China Sea. I think that's going to be a precursor for how things might develop in the future, particularly because China has not altered its stance on the South China Sea. And if the U.S. continues to see this as a, you know an area of increasing strategic importance, that at the very least means it'll be something to watch. So that's what we're looking at very closely. And then finally, Taiwan. So with the deterioration in U.S.-China ties, we've seen a bit of a renaissance in U.S.-Taiwan ties. And this is being driven as well by a bipartisan push in Congress. And that isn't sitting very well with China, I think, for obvious reasons. I think Taiwan's response to COVID-19, for example, provides a really good model for the rest of the world. But there is a kind of geopolitical undercurrent there that is going to inevitably complicate any deeper type of diplomatic engagement that the U.S. seeks with Taiwan or if the Taiwanese seek more broadly than with the region or with the world. And a lot of that is being conducted under the umbrella of COVID-19 prevention, which I think, again, personally, I think is a good thing. But overall, this is an area where we're seeing China react increasingly strongly to closer U.S.-Taiwan ties. And so that's something that we're growing increasingly nervous about as well. Our forecast is that we expect cross-strait relations to not be positive in any sense, but to remain frozen and kind of locked in this suspended, frozen reality for much of the next decade. Because what I'm trying to say is we're not expecting a war to break out. But I talked about this, this idea of an accidental conflict or a diplomatic miscalculation 
one of the areas where we can see that happening is in the Taiwan Strait, particularly as China increases its aerial and naval exercises around the island. That just raises the chance of, say, an accidental collision or you know, someone who's trigger happy on either of the three sides to make a bad call. And so I think that idea of a heightened risk around an accidental conflict, that's going to be the defining story for the next five years for Taiwan and China. And that could have much broader implications for the security dynamic in Asia more generally. So do you see any ways that companies you know, are navigating this low point in the U.S.-China ties? Like, what's a nation to do when it's wedged between these two superpowers that don't seem to be getting along or, or showing enough interest in doing so? Are there still areas of commercial opportunity in Asia? Yeah, I guess I'll start off by mentioning some thoughts and then maybe it might be useful for Lipe to jump in as well. But I think right now, I mentioned this idea of, of choosing sides. Most, if not every country or company is actively choosing or trying not to do that. People ask me, where does Thailand sit between the US and China? Are the ties, are they with the US or are they with the Chinese side? And my response is the ties are with the Thai side. Uh, they're going to do everything they can to make sure that their interests are preserved regardless of the deterioration between the US and China. And that's a story that we can see for much of the Asian region, regardless if it's Northeast Asia or Southeast Asia or South Asia. All of these economies are heavily reliant on trade with China. But in other ways, they're heavily reliant on the security guarantee offered by the U.S. And so I think that there is going to be this attempt at balancing that's going to continue. And that would likely manifest in more assertive policies. So assertive, for example, in terms of attracting FDI to develop into more sophisticated manufacturing for export bases, or even in terms of regional security policy. So, for example, if the U.S., is seeking to change the status quo, or if China is seeking to change the status quo, it's not necessarily a given that Malaysia or Singapore or the Philippines are 100% going to go along with it. I think there's going to be a bit more pushback against both countries in terms of, let's say, the US or the Chinese agenda in how they want to cultivate their ties with Southeast Asia, for example. I think in terms of commercial opportunity, that is preserved. Southeast Asia is home to a number of really strong emerging markets which again, range in terms of sophistication, but you do see really strong consumer demand across say markets in Malaysia or even Singapore, Indonesia. I think as companies diversify their supply chains, it's not only going to be this idea of diversifying to preserve you know, your export competitiveness. It's also going to be potentially diversifying to see, well, how can we service the Malaysian consumer? What can we do for the Singaporean consumer or the Indonesian consumer? So this idea of being in China for China could be replicated in terms of being in Indonesia for Indonesia. I mean, a lot of these economies, COVID aside, still have a lot of growth potential. The resumption of the growth potential depends on their ability to manage the pandemic. But in the long term, there do seem some pretty positive growth stories here. And so I'd be hesitant to say that there are no commercial opportunities in the region, even if the risks to commercial opportunities or the shocks facing commercial opportunities are increasing or have increased. Lipe, why don't you give us a little more on that too, from your perspective? Like it, what do you see as the, the opportunities either for U.S. companies moving some of their focus outside China or for maybe for Chinese companies? Like, How do you see that opportunity? Sure. Maybe I'll just comment on these questions from China's 
perspective, because most of our our member companies are actually in China for China, and of of course, um, supply chain adjustments um happening almost every day, not just because of the U.S. China trade frictions. It's it's really depends on the market demands and how they can be closely to their consumers and how they can be more effectively in terms of their overall operation. But as for China market, I think. We do see、um, increasing efforts that Chinese government is trying to create a better business environment. I think there is no question of that because we see the continuous shortened negative list for foreign investments, and we also see significant efforts are、uh, being made by Chinese government to liberalize its financial market. And we also understand that both U.S. and China's negotiation teams are. Satisfied with the phase one agreement implementation as of today, and actually that already addressed many long-term barriers in the agricultural sector. Legislation change for better protect the IP, and also China sets a new legal framework for foreign investment law to protect the level playing field for foreign business in China. And of course, this is the first year that China implemented this law. And we would still have to wait and see how our member companies can benefit from that. But like I said, the majority of our member companies are still、uh, looking optimism about the next five years outlook for business in China. And we also understand that Chinese top leadership have been messaging out about the continuous different form and other opening up will be a.、Uh, Direction that China will pursue with no change, but I think we should also realistically recognize that each country has its own interests, and the system might be different. So I think we're in a challenging stage to find basically a sweet spot to balance the market liberalization and also the need of national security protection. I think for business itself. No matter if it's U.S. business or if it's Chinese companies, I think in compliance probably is the most challenging issue as of today. And no matter where you are, compliance will be always the top priority in operating in the China market. I not only in the China market but also elsewhere. So I think there are opportunities and challenges are always existing together. Companies just have to. Be market oriented. Now, Nick, Asia is already moving forward with a number of big bilateral and multilateral trade deals. So, just to get a, a wider Asia perspective again, you know, can you tell us about some of those and what kind of risks they might face from either a Biden or a Trump presidency? Sure. I think what's interesting is the theme of our discussion today has really revolved around this idea of protectionism. And the idea that kind of trade is under threat, but when you look at some of the policy developments over the past year or so, there's a bit of a story to the contrary. This is primarily on a somewhat of a bilateral basis. So, the EU and Vietnam have recently finalized a trade deal that we expect to bring decent number of benefits to the Vietnamese economy over the next five years or so. There are negotiations underway for a number of other bilateral FTAs in progress. Japan and the UK just. Finalize a trade deal as well, although that is mostly to preserve the existing economic arrangement between the UK and Japan post Brexit.、Um, it wasn't really much of adding adding anything new. 
But I guess what I'm trying to say here is that the appetite for trade deals still seems to be relatively strong, regardless of the rhetoric around protectionism that has emerged, not just from the trade war, but also from COVID-19. And when we talk about the big multilateral deals, there are two that kind of jump to mind. The first is CPTPP, which is the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, so the rebranded TPP from Obama. That's in force now, and the focus is really around enlargement, as well as ensuring that some of the signatories that originally signed on will ratify it. So the big ones we're looking at right now are Malaysia, which still hasn't ratified, as well as uh, some countries in South America. But CPTPP is in force already. Um, we've seen anecdotal evidence that you know agricultural exporters in some of those markets are, are benefiting. It's been a little bit distorted by U.S.-China trade dynamics, but that's the big one we're watching. And the second one we're watching is RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which started off as a Southeast Asian-based initiative, but in more in recent years has become more associated with China. The RCEP story is pretty challenging, in my opinion, particularly because last November, it looked like things were moving ahead to get it finalized. And at the last minute, India pulled out of the agreement. And there was a, a number of Asian representatives who came out saying that they're going to move ahead with RCEP anyway. But long story short, they haven't. They were aiming to sign it earlier this year. That was ostensibly disrupted by COVID. They're aiming to have another signing summit in November, but our forecast actually is we aren't expecting it to be signed this year. And that's particularly because some of the major economies in the RCEP agreement, namely Japan and Australia, are really concerned about the loss of India because India, with its heavyweight economy, could have been a counterbalance to China, who you know, is also in that agreement. It's complicated, but India actually pulled out of the agreement because they're worried about the trade relationship that they have with China and how that might be even more unbalanced under the RCEP framework. And so because of these economic considerations, as well as the fact that China is locked in a pretty nasty bilateral dispute with Australia right now, and relations with Japan have always been kind of frosty, that suggests that there's going to be a lot of reticence for these countries in finalizing any RCEP agreement this year. That said, even if they do finalize an RCEP agreement, it's probably not going to change the trade reality all that much, the trade landscape all that much. In ASEAN, for example, tariff rates are already very, very low based on previous agreements. And so any macroeconomic impact would likely be pretty limited. But I want to end coming back to this theme on the appetite for trade liberalization and trade agreements. Even as we're seeing this protectionism rise globally and regionally, India is, is one big source of that, for example, we still are seeing other nations try and push ahead in this idea of you know, globalization is good. Globalization is something that benefits our economies and that our companies want to take advantage of. And so that's going to be a really interesting development in terms of how those factors play off against each other over the next couple of years. So we're almost out of time here, but I want to get one last quick question in. And so uh, briefly, just to tie it all back to the elections, have either of you heard from your networks on either side in Asia or U.S. or just business people in general that you speak with? You know, what is the expectation or the hope as far as is there a lean one way or the other for Biden or Trump in the election? Uh, Lipe, what do you hear? Yeah, um, many people have asked that question, but I think we all know what happened uh, back to four years ago. 
But I think from business community perspective, regardless what happens in November, we'd like to see both governments find a way to work through challenges, to find a way to grow commercial relationships through a pro-trade and pro-business agenda. So as long as that could be a priority for the administration, I think that the business community will be fully supported. I'll jump in with the EIU perspective just because, I mean, we have to do forecasting. So doing these predictions is uh, a fortunate or unfortunate part of the job based on how you look at it. So our forecast is that we are expecting Joe Biden to win in November. But in terms of the hope or the, the preference, I think it really, at this point, it still really differs based on who you talk to or even what region of the world you're trying to look at. Talking about some of that shift that we might see under Biden, this idea of a tactical change where policy certainty is, is kind of restored. You don't have as much surprises in international relations. I think that's something that a lot of governments and companies would really welcome. I mean, even if they see the long-term trend in U.S.-China ties kind of heading south, if you know the policies are coming, at least you can respond to them. At least you can come up with a contingency plan. You don't have to scramble overnight when President Trump tweets and suddenly you're left high and dry. So I think that idea of more policy certainty is pushing people to lean towards Biden. However, at the same time, you've heard similar things that a lot of what Trump has done in regards to China in terms of taking it to task on its economic policy, or even some of the stuff around Hong Kong, human rights in Xinjiang, as well as the relationship with Taiwan, a lot of people fundamentally agree with that. And so even if they disagree with the tactics, they think that the fact that the US is now standing up on those issues is a positive development. And so they, they'd hope to see that continue. And so I've talked to other people who say that, yeah, we wouldn't mind a Trump second term as long as these broader themes are preserved. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is I haven't seen a unified perspective on this. I think that there is clearer preference for Biden based on client conversations, as well as kind of what we're seeing in terms of the polling, as well as in the US or outside the US. But I mean, to echo what Lee Pei said, I think at the end of the day, people just want to kind of go back to a sense of normalcy before all of this happened. Uh, companies want to make money. <laughs> they, they want to make sure that their operations don't have to worry about geopolitical risks, or at least not worry about that as much. I think our perspective is geopolitical risks are here to stay. And knowing how to manage that is going to increasingly be an important part of any corporate strategy. And that's something that people need to realize right now. Great. Thank you both. That's the time that we've got. Thank you, Lee Pei. Thank you. And thank you, Nick. Thank you, Jason. And thanks to all of you for listening. And that's it for our U.S. election special podcast. I hope you found the conversation informative. If you've missed the first episode, you can find it easily on this channel. And if you are interested in more in-depth analysis by the EIU on the U.S. and elections, have a look at the links in the show notes. It'll take you to some of our reports. As always, please email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. If you have any questions about our work, and don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. Thank you again for listening and stay safe. Mm-hmm.